Hey there, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. You're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing George Bernard Shaw's play, Pygmalion. Tim, it's it's drama time. It's drama week. It's playtime. Yeah, playtime. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, it's drama week. I like that. It's drama week on Close Reads. And you are the drama king. <laughs> Very dramatic. I have strong emotions. Oh, um, this is a sweet moment. Were you uh, were you a drama king as a, as a child? No. Um, my brother and I used to put on performances for my parents when we were kids, and we had this really clever idea. This was back in the eighties when, like, knee high tube socks were in fashion. Oh yeah. And so my brother and I <laughs> would kind of tumble out of bed, and we would go like kind of work up a play, and as if we were wearing a necktie we would hang one of these long tube socks from our collar and we'd like hang down to our belt. And there are a couple of pictures that exist somewhere of it. It's, it's a really strange look, but this we thought exciting, we're pulling but, this off. Your do little look. Like you wore these neckties cause you thought actors wore neckties. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, this is what they do. Right. They and they show up for, they just are always looking dapper, like they're getting on a Pan Am plane in 1983. A Pan Am plane. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. That's the best moment of my day so far. Uh, well, it's young. The day is young. So hopefully we can have an episode full of uh, great moments, Heidi. Uh, what's your um, relationship to, uh, to drama? Who, me? Oh, no. Yeah. I have no relationship whatsoever to That's, drama. That cannot be true. Okay, so I did assistant direct multiple plays in Thank high you. school because my AP English teacher was like, I was very close to him. And so, and he also directed all of the school plays. And so I did that, but I am not an actress at mm. all. Mm. So You're a responsible, you're a responsible young lady. Great assistant director, yes. stage manager. I, yeah. Okay, hold on. It takes all kinds of people to make a, to put the show on. I did try. I was Squirrel in the Rabbit Who Wanted Red Wings in middle school. Mm. Community theater. Squirrel one or just no, squirrel? No, just Squirrel. Like yeah. there's one squirrel mm. in the play and I was that squirrel. And I think I did a pretty good job. I had like a whole squirrel head that I had to wear like a mask and... Mm. Yeah. Do you remember any of your lines from that? Apparently, I was very good at the nervous motions with my hands, which you guys, that's not going to surprise anybody. So, <laughs> you're a hand talker. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, this is a play, and that means that we are going to rely heavily on on Tim's expertise as a director and as an actor and as a playwright. Yes. Which which seems to be our new our new thing here on the show. Um, if you listen to our um, our Sean boarding episode then you know how how great of a, an actor Tim is. Also, I want to say, Heidi, you had some great line reads in that, in that little, uh, that little scene. I mean, I don't know why I'm calling them line reads because it's just a recorded thing that happened. We didn't, we definitely didn't write any of that ahead of time or anything, but. Um, it was just my <laughs> hidden internal pettiness rearing its ugly head. <laughs> no acting involved. Good, good boy. <laughs> it was a great line. The best the line, end. the closing yep. line of the whole yep. thing. Yeah, it was good great. Good boy. Well, uh, Pygmalion is a play by George Bernard Shaw. Now, if you have the Penguin Classics edition, it just says Bernard Shaw on the cover. And Pygmalion, of course, is also a 
Greek myth, or at least a mythological figure. Uh, this is a play that was originally um, based on my uh, my mediocre, quick internet research. Uh, it premiered in Vienna in October of 1913, and then was presented in German on stage to the public in 1913, before ultimately um, being put on in the West End in London in April of 1914. Now, one of my favorite bits of internet research on this play is that the person who played uh, Henry Higgins, his, do you know what his name was, Tim, by any chance? Did you look this up? No, no. And I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, but his name was Herbert Beerbaum Tree. Goodness. Beerbaum Tree wow. was his name. So that That's was the man really strong. who played Henry Higgins. And then Eliza Doolittle was played by an actress named Mrs. Patrick Campbell. That was the most she was given on the billing. Um, and ironically, wow. that's the case, despite the fact that he wrote the play with her in mind as the actress. In 1912, he wrote the play, read it to her, thought of her as this, the person who would be perfect to play this. And she still gets uh, Mrs. Patrick Campbell on the billing. Um, you probably know that this was made into an, a, a musical in 1956 called My Fair Lady. And then there's a couple different movie adaptations of it as well, one in 38 and one in 64. So this is... Um, it's a pretty well-known and uh, well-represented play beyond just the stage uh, where of course it's been put on in many different languages and universities and, you know, community theaters and things like that. But before we get too deep into the play itself, Heidi, I want to ask you, uh, I did not prepare you for this. What is your degree of expertise on oh, no. the myth Pygmalion, the mythological key, key, uh, character? Um, I mean, I know the story. Do you want me to, Give a yeah, might as well. Might as well g- see that I can yeah, do. Give a little I may not be an okay. actress, but yeah. <laughs> um, so well, I was hoping, when I say, Pygmalion. could you do a dramatic, a dramatic retelling? Yep. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm going to pass that off to Tim. Um, so, in the myth of Pygmalion, Pygmalion, uh, he carves a per- the perfect woman. He's a confirmed bachelor. Um, despises women, uh, and he carves his perfect woman out of a piece of perfect marble. And as he carves her out of the marble, he falls in love with her and he begins to pine away with love for his creation. Uh, And the gods looking down upon Pygmalion are intrigued, especially Aphrodite, who's always looking for weird human ways to love. Uh, they are, they become moved by the strangeness of this love story. Uh, and so in honor of him, they turn her into a flesh and blood woman. And so she comes to life before his very eyes, and then they are united in marriage. And so the myth of Pygmalion endures uh, down to our time. Many kind of references or even retellings have been made of this idea of the man uh, falling in love with his own creation that kind of mirrors him in some way. Uh, and we definitely see that in this in this play with lots of other very fascinating levels of interpretation to it as well. There is some there's some great um, paintings of mm-hmm. Pygmalion Galatea. Great oil paintings. It's Google. Yeah, for sure. It's an enduring story. 
So Tim, how familiar are you with this play? I mean, you, I assume you've at least seen stage productions. Have you ever been in one or anything like that? No. And I've never seen a live stage production. I've seen My Fair Lady, the movie, yeah, sure. and I've seen a couple of earlier film productions, but I've never seen, I've never seen the play live and in person. And I wonder if the play has fallen out of favor because we are so, so, so class conscious now that to bring somebody on stage in Eliza Doolittle, who's very much, the whole play depends on her being of a lower class than Higgins and Pickering, that I wonder if people are like, ah, we don't do that anymore. But mm. that's something we don't really want to talk about. I mean, even the movie Trading Places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd, which is a retelling of Pygmalion for Wall Street in like the 1980s, even that play, that play, that movie has kind of fallen out of favor because Eddie Murphy is, you know, like second class, lower class. It just raises all these kind of questions that are really, really prickly right now in American culture. So I wonder if that's the reason I have never seen a production, a, a, a live production. Heidi, have you seen a live production? I have, but it was a high school production and they changed the ending so it was more like My Fair Lady. They changed it so that mm. they, got, they get together at the end. So Freddie doesn't, Freddie doesn't win the day? No, Freddie does not win the day. <laughs> I think later in the podcast, we, we need to talk about like how the ending of Shaw's play morphed into My Fair Lady and I totally whether agree. or not we think it works. Like My Fair Lady is such a great movie. It's such a great movie. But I I wonder if Shaw's original concerns are kind of blunted by My Fair Lady and some of the later renditions of of the play. Well, this is a play that's, you know, it's studied and read, even if it's maybe fallen out of favor. It's like a pretty notable example of 20th century drama. And I mean, Shaw himself is, is a key figure as, you know, Tim, you know a lot about Shaw. You've written about him. You've written a play about him. Yeah. Um, you what are do you think Shaw. That, you inhabit yeah, Shaw. Yeah, I was Shaw. That's right. Yeah, that's that's right. right. I was Shaw. That's right. Um, what do you think this play, you mentioned its concerns, but as a playwright, as an actor, um, as a director, what do you think this play does best? I, I think... I think it's fun. First off, I just think it's fun. It's a great hook and a concept for a play. Um, Henry Higgins kind of, you know, makes a bet with Pickering that he can make this woman, you know, very low born with a very, you know, just like this offensive kind of gutter accent. He makes this bet that he can make Eliza Doolittle pass as a great duchess. And, I think it's great. It has all sorts of conflict and miscommunication and kind of maybe even the hint of romance. And I think that's great. I think Shaw is a great playwright. I mean, there's just no way around it. He's a great playwright. I think that the, I think it's also kind of intended to be an expose of the British upper classes at this time in British history, early 20th century. Um, and I think it does a brilliant job of that. I think it really skewers this kind of 
massive, it, it, it skewers the upper class and it shows this massive difference, distance between the upper classes and someone in Eliza's shoes. And there's just no understanding of what Eliza's actual life is like from Doolittle. Hmm. Have you guys seen I'm the- sorry, I'm sorry. I said Doolittle. I meant- um, You meant Higgins. Higgins. Higgins, Higgins, Higgins yeah. yeah, excuse me. Have you guys seen The Crown, the show? Yes. And so I was rewatching that, um, and I happened to be to rewatch the episode this week during a bout of insomnia at like two in the morning, where Princess Margaret is getting her photograph taken, mm. and uh, the photographer, you, you know, is doing this sort of stuffy fairy tale motif, and he gives this speech. Uh, Cecil, the photographer, he gives this speech about how. Somewhere in our country, there is a a lowly chambermaid is the phrase he the word he uses who is going to be upset about her her station in life and 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 exhausted at the end of a hard day of labors and she's going to see the picture of Princess Margaret and she's going to be made happy huh. and it's like pardon me can we go back Can we go back through everything you just said and it was interesting to read that or to see that at the same time as reading this play because there's this sense in which it's like all we have to do is be here and everybody the people who have who are living this this sort of difficult life a life of bordering on poverty if not abject poverty all we have to do is like be there for them to feel better about themselves and it's such an interesting notion, which I think does sort of show up here as well in this play. Mm. Mm. I, I do think, to interject, I remember um, in Democracy in America, Alexis de Tocqueville, he makes a point that in oligarchic societies or in aristocratic societies, there is a sense that the majority of people look up to and seek to emulate the an aristocratic way of life, or they at least respect it, mm-hmm. even if they don't have the means to copy and live an aristocratic way of mm-hmm. life. It's at least respected. And in a democracy like the United States, one doesn't look up to the aristocrats, but one looks across at one's neighbor for sort of like indications of what's proper and good and right. And so I do think that there, I think it's important to not forget when this play first came out that the aristocrats who appear to be very snobbish and out of touch and self-important, I think it would not be so glaring when this play was first produced as it is to us today. And I also think Americans pride themselves in not being a class-driven society. Of course, we find all sorts of ways to kind of like measure a person's class, et cetera, et cetera, through their manners and their clothes and their shoes, et cetera. But um, American culture is, is not as class bifurcated as British culture is even today. True. And I mean, I'm, I've got on the record as saying I'm pro monarchy. So, you know, who am I to speak? But the Tim and I have debated this before, but um, I, I think even during this time, though, the world is changing a lot. You know, the early mm-hmm. part of the 20th century, it's, it's leading up to what is ultimately going to be England of 1957 or 1958 that Queen Elizabeth and Princess Margaret are 
trying to figure out how to how to live in as royalty. And so we're, and you see that you see these questions of of rights and of of it'll trying to minimize the differences between the classes showing up all over the world during this time. Heidi, for you, when you read this play, is that what stands out the most to you? Like, is that what you enjoyed reading about or thinking about the most? These questions of class, um, or or is it you know, is it the comedy? Is it the questions of language? There's all these different themes that show up. I think that the class issue is is incredible. I love that. I think that the relationship between I see, I was so surprised, Tim, the other day when we were talking about this and you said, and you said class, and then I said gender, and you said more about class, because I really think this is a play about men and women, just mm. as much as it is a play mm. about class. Um, and, but I also really do enjoy the, the, the way that he weaves what I, I think are these three strands of, um, examination skewering um satire like uh, these three strands of the the question of language what does it mean to master language the preface he really highlights this is the first thing he mentions um in the preface as being important about the play um and then the question of class and then the question of men and women um and he's just so subversive and such a hilarious hilarious way. The other thing I really like about this play that it feels very Shakespearean to me is um, Eliza as this like boundary crossing character who can exist in multiple spheres of English society and how she doesn't quite fit into any of them and has to craft her own identity then. Um, I've, and so I think it's also a play about the emerging self. And in that sense, it's very modern, which I also just really like that. Hmm. Which character do you find the most compelling, Tim? Oh, I I want to say... Eliza Doolittle, but I, I, I find myself feeling maybe more pity. I feel a lot of pity for her. So I feel like I should say Eliza Doolittle, but I'm going to say Pickering because I think Pickering for me, I, I, I think Higgins is pretty repugnant. Sure. And I, and I think that we're meant to find him somewhat appealing. He's this genius. You know, he has this incredible He reveals himself as and, it goes on. Yeah. And he by the end of the play, I just find him to be awful. He's awful. But Pickering, I think, is of his same status. He has the same sort of blind spots or potential blind spots as Higgins. But he has so much sympathy for Eliza. And I think for a man of his position, I admire how whatever we're going to call it empathetic sympathetic he is with eliza's plight hmm. do you th- which character do you think would be the most fun to play higgins because your man picking, picking pickering doesn't <laughs> I hate, have enough I hate to say it but higgins would be more fun to play for me so do you view him and how do you can jump in here too do you view him as like uh, a, a villain like the bad guy of the play such as it were or is it is it just like not that kind of play. Do like? Do you think we're supposed to view him as like actually a bad guy? Right. I don't think so. I don't think we're supposed to view him as a bad guy. I think that Shaw humanizes him em- enough and makes him funny enough 
uh, that he it's at the end, we more either laugh at him or feel as angry at him as Eliza does. And we want him to change, right? We want the big moment. I think that's why to make this into a movie, you had to change the end. Like it does not work as a film unless or big film, right? It doesn't, it doesn't work in 1957 or whatever, right? Um, Without him being tamed by the woman, right? Um, And, uh, but in the play, it's a brilliant choice as a piece of literature, um, so I, I don't think he's the villain. No, but I think he is the character at the end who is you're most exasperated with and rightly so. Hmm. I am going to say, I think that here's my hunch. I think that Shaw intended to have him become a villain by the end of the play. I think what we're supposed to do is say, oh, Eliza Doolittle trashy, uneducated, and then she rises in our estimation as the play goes on, as Higgins falls as it goes on. But that creates a problem that the character that we are most attached to throughout the play has been Higgins. And we're how can we turn him into a bad guy? And so I think the ending of the play is actually a massive problem for Shaw. Like, what are we going to do here? Because I That's do right. think Higgins represents the everything that Shaw hates. Everything yeah. that Shaw hates, right? But he's our POV. He's our POV. Exactly. Exactly right. And so are we going to turn on the point of view character in this play? We can't really do that. It, like Emotionally, yeah. I think it would feel... Is that, is that harder... Would, Sorry, is that harder to do in a play than it is in like a book? You know, we just read the Netanyahu's where the by the end of it, our narrator kind of reveals who he is a, a bit more and he's stuck in this dilemma at the end of the play and he doesn't get the happy ending either. Now, That's yeah, we a don't, great question. But then maybe you can, you can do that in a way that's different in a play because in the play you're so dependent on the response of people in the moment. Like there's no, you don't, a novel you can kind of linger with. In a play, we're reading it, right? But you're seeing right. it on stage and you're not seeing all the yeah. lines, you're experiencing it. And so how are you gonna what are you gonna walk away feeling? So does that does the complexity of the dilemma that you're suggesting there for Shaw like is That's it, a great question. Is it made more complex, I suppose, by the fact that there are seats and butts that need to respond right in the moment? It's ambiguous at the end. Without the afterward, without the sequel section that we all read in the Penguin Classics version, we don't we we don't definitively know that they don't end up together because she's moving back in and he's the one who claims that it's going, that they're going to be three confirmed bachelors, right? But she yeah, doesn't just... really agree to that. And so I, I, I think, I, I don't know. I, I guess the question is, does he make the right choice here at the end by leaving it open-ended like that? Mm-hmm. Um and and because I agree with Tim, Tim, I think you're right. It's a problem. It's a problem ending. If you're not going to reform Higgins, just as if if he's not going to be the leading man at the end in the sense that he gets the girl, what do you do with him? Yeah, what do you do with him? And so, um, so he left it open. George Bernard Shaw leaves it open-ended, um, which I do think is more difficult to do in a play. And I think 
If the question is whether or not it works, I think you can look at it two ways. One is we're still reading it. And so, yeah, it works. It's awesome. It's a really, really clever ending. It's a super good play. But then on the other hand, when they tried to turn it into a movie, they had to change the entire ending, which completely changes the meaning of the story. And so in that sense, maybe it didn't work. I don't know. It's open-ended. But on the other hand, the play was is interesting and and for lack of a better word, just fun enough to want to make a new totally. movie. So yeah. everything else about it is so compelling that you get to the end and maybe you forgive the ending or you maybe there's something like in the air that makes you realize that it's the right sort of ending. Because I feel like for a lot of the book, you kind of wonder if by the end, are, is Hagen's going to turn and they're going to come together and you know she's going to be raised up and he's going to help be humbled and then they're going to you know, end up together, or maybe it's going to be a Romeo and Juliet type, you know, turns right. out to, you know, something weird happens at the end. I did want to throw another pair of slippers at him during that whole conversation at the end. So. Oh yeah. 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 The 1930s version did a, they, they changed the end. The movie. In the penultimate scene. Yeah. The movie kind of changes the end from the play that we read, but in the penultimate scene, um, after Eliza has her debut and her great success, you know, at this beautiful party and she fools everyone, all three of our main characters come home, Pickering, Higgins, and Doolittle. And Pickens and Higgins, <laughs> why am I struggling so much with these names? Pickens, Pickens and Pickering. Higgins. Pickering and, Higg- <laughs> and Higgins. Golly come into the room where Eliza is kind of tucked back into a corner. This is at Higgins' home. And, you know, they start sipping their whiskeys or their brandies and Higgins can't find his slippers. When Eliza steps out of the shadows and into the room, they don't even notice her or they don't even acknowledge her presence. And it's really powerful because on the one hand, you're like, wait, how are they not seeing her? And you're like, oh, she's a piece of furniture in their mind. She's a piece of furniture. And I think, you know, she like mm. delivers the slippers and, and Higgins is like, yo, thanks. But there was never any acknowledgement. Oh, Eliza, you're here. And I thought it was a great touch because that has been, especially for Higgins, even for Pickering, the way that they have viewed Eliza throughout most of the play. She's kind of an object to be educated but not a person. So by the end of the play, then does Pickering, has he evolved to see her as a person and not the lab, the rat in the lab? Yes, I think so. And is that why he's compelling to you, Tim? Yeah, that's why he's compelling to me. Well, it's interesting that he, that we accept his change despite the fact that his characterization and it's his lines his I mean, he's on the stage a lot, but he's not, yeah. he's doing a lot of being on the stage, but not talking. And yet we accept his change without having to be having it to be explained to us. It seems mm. like that's, that must be a difficult, subtle thing to pull off in a play because you just have like characters who it's just a stage time factor, right? If it's a novel, you can give them a whole chapter just for Pickering, right? You can give us more of him. And so like as a playwright, yeah, like how do you do that? kind of side stage. Right. Isn't but he? He's kind of side stage. Right. And I've always, until this reading, I've kind of wondered what he's there for. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what do you need this guy for in this play? There, it's such a small cast. 
And so every person matters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So why do we have a pickering? And maybe it's because to your point, to both of your points, he can be on the stage without lines being kind. Yes. Like, yes. Like being a real gentleman mm. and um, through blocking, just like, yes, in presence. yeah, like he, yeah. yeah, just having him like pick up the boots and move him out of the way or bring her a cup of tea or take his like, hat off. Yeah, like exactly. When she like stand when he walks in the room or when she walks in the room, right? Um, which by the way, we have a good friend of ours who stands, who was, he grew up in Kansas. And every time a lady stands at a table, he, and, uh, he stands up still to this day and all the guys all my husband all his friends like kind of like give him a hard time about it but he is beloved for it like all of us girls are like thank you so much that's so kind like it's just a lost chivalrous art and we notice it every time um and so that maybe it's that maybe that's his purpose in the play to just be the guy that stands when a lady enters the room or walks out of the room so that to mm. provide a foil for Higgins. So we'd know just that's from, from our perspective in the audience, what Higgins isn't doing. Yeah. That that's great. Is. Yeah. So physically he's doing, yeah, he's creating the, just creating a comparison by the his civilized presence. society that gives her something to aspire to, even though Higgins is completely failing. And so we, as the audience can visually see the contrast between these two men. Hmm. Yeah. That's, and that's uh, like, do you think that that's there in the language as well? Like in the writing or is it something that we have to in, kind of infer? A little bit more. Cause he rebukes him for how unkind True. he is. But I, I think it would be more visual. It would, it would be solidified by that visual interaction between audience and stage. And of course, one of the bits of verbal comedy is that pretty much everybody is make is like getting on Higgins for being kind of a buffoon. His mother, Mrs. Pierce, like you, you don't take care of anything. You think you're this big gentleman, but you you can't even keep track of your own appointments. You you make huge messes all the time. You're not who you think you are. And so I guess that. All that all working together creates this sort of make makes Pickering stand out, I guess is what I'm trying to say. One of the other things that shows up in this play for me is how derisive Shaw is of middle class morality over and over and over again. He and Higgins and Doolittle in their different ways just are such scolds about middle-class morality. And sometimes, this is the thing about Shaw that sometimes will just drive me up a wall. He is such a brilliant playwright. But I want to say, dude, who gets it right in your book? Like, who? you don't (laughs) like the aristocrats. You're one of them, but you don't like the aristocrats. Mm. You want to side with the kind of lower-class struggleville, you know, people, but you you would never hang out with them. You know, mm-hmm. you kind of mm-hmm. look down your nose at them because you are an aristocrat. And so what's left? The middle class is left, but he hates the middle class worst of all. And I'm like, what do you want, dude? And I think this is so later in his life, he develops this philosophy of the Superman. You know, there is, and it's kind of a proto Nietzschean vision of sort of like, the trend, the, the character that trans values values. He is mm. so above and beyond that he can kind of like topple middle class morality, stand on his own. Or I should, should say, 
she, because he really in man and Superman, his Superman character is the female protagonist. That's right. The female protagonist is the one who she's the one who chooses who to mate with. And she chooses to mate with basically the most evolutionarily viable male that she, that is in her circle. And so in a way, she is kind of leading the upward evolutionary progress of society. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of peculiar thing. And especially when you, it's hard to read naively after world war two, this idea of a Superman, mm. if, if you follow what I'm saying, like, there's a strong sense that the Nazis view themselves as kind of like the vanguard of upward evolution. And they were supermen and they were going to kind of like carry on this upward trajectory of human development. And you're like, oh yeah, death camps. That's where we went. We went to mm. the death camps. And so it's hard to look back at Shaw and be like, oh, he didn't know that was coming. And he didn't know that was coming, obviously. But I just wonder if there is a little bit of a link there. Between well, Shaw's vision of Superman and this kind of Aryan vision. That even goes to the theme, which we haven't touched on yet, of language, which I think we should touch on a little bit. And then we're gonna have a in, in a couple minutes here, we're gonna have a um we're gonna we're gonna act. We're gonna do a we're gonna do a little table reading. Maybe it's not maybe we couldn't call it acting, Tim, but we're gonna do table reading. We've got a special guest we're gonna bring on here to help us with that. But Higgins is this guy who who views like there's a proper way of speaking, and yet he is intrigued by all these different dialects. He's an expert, but he's always an expert towards sort of preserving or moving towards the best version of, of, of language. Heidi, for you, that seems like a theme that must be really interesting. Mm -hmm. I can imagine you taking copious notes on the theme of language in, <laughs> as you were reading this book. No yeah, question. I think it's period. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Just period comments, comments, please. Um, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, and his, obvious uh higgins love for milton and shakespeare in terms of the the language um and their use of language which i can't help but notice how his miltonian mind right i right i can't i can't help but notice how empty and vacuous his understanding of their um uh he values them for the language, but not for the content, right? Um, and that 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 carries over in Higgins' character throughout the whole play. Like he teaches her how to speak rightly, but he also uh, does nothing. He also uh, solidifies in her her his own bad temper and his own lack of polish in his language. The words he says are bad, but the way he says it is good. Right. And that is mm. that that's such a key, I think, to his to his character and to part of what Shaw is skewering here or drawing attention to here is that class isn't about the veneer. Uh, like it's, it is about the soul. Uh, it's the mystery as well as the manners, right. To use Flannery O'Connor's term. And, uh, and that's something that Higgins completely lacks any vision uh, into. Should we, um, you know, let's, let's do this scene that we want to do. It's in act two, because I think it gets into this question of, of language here. It's like kind of where Higgins is revealing his, uh, his true self or beginning to, um, cause at the beginning of the book, 
the play, I think you you maybe see him as a little more You're hoping noble. for him to be a or, hero. You're hoping yeah. for him to rescue. It's going to be a Cinderella story, right? Right. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Um, so we're going to be doing some some of Act 2 here. And of course, next week we got the Q&A, so we can cover a lot of ground there as well. But let's... Jesse Turpin, un, unmute yourself here. Jesse is going to come in here. She's going to save the day. Hello, Jesse. Hi, Tim. Hi, David. Hi, Heidi. Hi, Jesse. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank, thank you. you for coming on. So we're going to do some act two acting. And uh, what we're going to do is the scene that's got four parts to it. And it's got Mrs. Pierce. It's got Higgins. It's got Liza. And it's got Pickering. And uh, Heidi and I are the novice performers here. And so we'll do those scenes that have the character that has fewer lines. So Heidi's going to be Mrs. Pierce and I'll do Pickering. And then Tim's going to be Higgins. And that meant we needed, we needed Eliza. And uh, so we asked Jesse, Tim, why don't you talk a little bit about Jesse's acting? Cause you've worked with her and then we'll let Jesse say a little bit herself. We're just going to let, make her sit here and listen to this first. A year and a half ago, Jesse and I, along with our friend, John Hodges put on a three person play that was about George Bernard Shaw's relationship with G.K. Chesterton. And John and I got to just be one character each. I think Jesse played about, you think he played 10 characters in the play, Jesse, something like that? It seemed like a lot. Every woman, I guess. Yeah, every woman was her name, every woman. And she, one of the characters that she played was Eliza Doolittle because during the course of the play, Shaw writes Pygmalion and... Jesse steps forward and played Eliza Doolittle with a great Cogni accent, I might add, which I'm hoping <laughs> you. you're going to bring back for this show. I am. I absolutely am. I'm all That's here great. for it. So, so we're all going to do British accents, right? Yeah. Um, you two are welcome to do that because you're professionals. <laughs> Heidi, I'm going to leave you, uh, let you make I'm a choice on that. Decisions. But I'm going to play Pickering as if he is um, an American. He's American visiting yeah. from America. He's, He's yeah. interested. He's he's been serving alongside the the British military in India, but then he is he's come to America having I mean come have he's come to London having heard about Higgins. That's going to be my take on Pickering. I just I did a little bit of interpretive work. I have like a whole journal of my thoughts nice. about what this nice. version of Pickering would be, and I felt like he was you know he was an American nobleman who was trying to understand what it means to to be a, a true westerner i think i think if you're going to do that we should call you bob pickering if you're going to be the american <laughs> in london you're Steve. bob pickering bob. <laughs> okay I mean, fine call me whatever you want uh jesse first of all how, what was it like working with tim it's an it wonderful. question no it's such an honor to be back with tim here reading the pygmalion because I've talked so much fun about it so much fun by the way Tim wrote the play he's referencing here yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so let's, and I think let's that's what it made it was that so there. fun to be you know a part of Tim's play that he wrote and being in it was just really an honor and with John Hodges because he's brilliant yeah it was fun I, to watch. We, we also yeah. owe David a thanks because I wrote the play and it was performed in like just one of the breakout sessions at Circe. And a lot of people showed up and David and Heidi showed up and David saw it. And he's like, I wonder if we could do this on the main stage at the Circe conference. And so we decided the next night we were going to do a full performance in front of everybody. And honestly, it was really great because I was thinking maybe we'll get 75 people showed up. And it, I felt like almost like 200 plus. Than, yeah. Yeah. We had a lot of people. 
show up. It was great. Je- Jesse, quickly, what's your acting? You, you did some stuff in college, right? What's what's your interest in in this? Oh, my interest is great, but I don't have very much experience as far as like stage acting, except for I did some stuff in college. And then um, my only experience has just been with like friends and doing it in high school and things like that. But no, I try to keep up with it. I read aloud to my kids. <laughs> I have to do all the accents. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's about it. Other than Tim's play, but I have a variety of plays on my bookshelf and I try to go through my kids think I'm ridiculous for this, but I'll just read it out loud and like do all the parts. And I just, it's really fun. I enjoy doing it. They think it's ridiculous. That's great. <laughs> Mom, what are you doing in there? Who are you talking to? They think it's ridiculous, but they spend their whole day doing exactly that. <laughs> I know, yeah, they exactly. do. Children. Well, exactly. when they get older, I'm like, I'm going to have like different copies and I'm going to make them do it as part of their schooling to do read plays with me. Nice. I well love done. it. <laughs> nice. Well done. Um, well, as Tim said, we thought you did a great job and it was, you know, we thought it would be really Thank fun to, to actually do this as a, you know, it's a play. We can't just talk <laughs> about it. We got to actually act it out a little bit. So Sam, uh, we're going to do part of act two here. It begins with um, Mrs. Pierce introducing Liza to the room. And the, so the first line there that we're starting with is, uh, this is the young woman, sir. We'll see how long we can go okay. uh, before we kind of run out of time. But David, can I just interject one thing? Please. I, I think that we should severely truncate the stage directions. There's this, there was this tradition in the 18th <laughs> or 19th and early 20th century of stage directions, and Shaw falls victim to it. He writes the longest, most laborious stage directions. It's like Ibsen. If you've ever read an Ibsen play, he has these stage directions built in. They actually make a little bit more sense for Ibsen. But an example is, you know, from an Ibsen play, he walks in front of the couch, stopping at a gray-colored knee-high ottoman. He turns left, (laughs) feeling himself blocked there. He retreats, steps forward again, kneels, considers his position, wonders about his mother's death, moves forward. And you're like, Ibsen! Can we just like get on with it already? And Shaw does the exact novel. same thing. Yeah, right. So I'm just going to- I don't know just, if we need any of them in this scene. I don't think we need any of them. I don't think we well, need any of them. Well, there's a few descriptors of some of the characters that might be helpful. But can I just read the example? Like this first big stage direction. I'm not even going to read all of it because it's so laborious. <laughs> a, flower girl's enters, a flower girl enters in state. She's a hat with three ostrich feathers, orange, sky blue, and red. She has a nearly clean apron, and the shoddy coat has been tidied a little. The pathos of this deplorable figure with its innocent vanity and consequential air, it goes on and on. And I have to say, Shakespeare and modern playwright, here's what it would say. A poor girl enters. Let the director do the rest of the work. Let the director do the rest of the work. Anyway. (laughs) <laughs> I'm off my high horse now. No, I'm not quite off my high horse, but I won't. I won't belabor. No, no, that. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. We will not. We will not belabor people having to listen to that. Then I don't know what sentence that. What I just said. That's not really a sentence, <laughs> but we won't. We will go with you. And uh, so let's start then with um, this is a young woman, sir. If you're if you're following along, if you paused it and went and grabbed your book, and you're using the Penguin Classics, it's on page twenty five, uh, about two thirds of the way down. So Heidi, why don't you take it away? All right. I'm going to try my hand at an English accent here. I love it. I love it's it. It's going to be bad, Tim. I'm afraid you're going to judge me. <laughs> no, I'm, and, mine's terrible. Mine's terrible. And, and I'm going to be right want, there with you. If okay. you need to do any you know, direction at any point, 
Okay. Have us reread a line. Be the director. Okay. Take us through okay. this. Okay. Actually, Here, I'll, give, hurt I'll my give us feelings. one. That's why I'm not an actress. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give us all one stage direction right now. Start your line on the la- on the second to last word of the preceding actor. So the so the pickups are super quick. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Here we go. And action. This is the young woman, sir. So now Eliza walks in. Why, this is the girl I jotted down last night. She's no use. I've got all the records I want of Listen Grove lingo. I'm not going to waste another cylinder on it. Be off with you. I don't want you. You be so saucy. You ain't heard what I come for yet. Did you tell him I come in a taxi? Nonsense, girl. What do you think a gentleman like Mr. Higgins cares what you came in? Oh, we are proud. Hey, ain't above giving lessons, not him. I heard him say so. Well, I ain't come here to ask for any compliment. If my money's not good enough, I go elsewhere. Good enough for what? Good enough for you. Now you know, don't you? I'm coming to have lessons, I am, and to pay for them too. Make no mistake. Well, what do you expect me to say to you? Well, if you was a gentleman, you might ask me to sit down, I think. Don't I tell you? I'm bringing you business. Pickering, should we ask this baggage to sit down or shall he throw her out of the window? Oh, I won't be called a baggage when I've offered to pay, like any lady. But what is Motion it you want? Yeah. I want to be a lady in a flower shop instead of selling at the corner of Tottenham Court Road. But they won't take me unless I can talk more genteel. He said they could teach me. Well, here I am, ready to pay him. Not asking any favour. And he treats me as if I was dirt. How can you be such a foolish, ignorant girl as to think you could afford to pay Mr. Higgins? Why shouldn't I? I know what lessons cost as well as you do, and I'm ready to pay. How much? Now you're talking. I thought you'd come off it when you saw a chance of getting back a bit what you chucked to me last night. You'd have drop in, hadn't you? Sit down. Oh, if you're going to make a compliment of it. Sit down. Sit down, girl. Do as you're told. Oh, won't you sit down? Don't mind if I do. What's your name? Eliza Doolittle. Eliza, Elizabeth, Betsy and Bess. They went to the woods to get a bird's nest. They found a nest with four eggs in it. They took one apiece and left three in it. Oh, don't be silly. You mustn't speak to the gentleman like that. Well, why? Well, he speaks sensible to me. Come back to business. How much do you propose to pay me for the lessons? Oh, I know what's right. A lady friend of mine gets French lessons for 18 pence an hour from a real French gentleman. Well, you wouldn't have the face to ask me the same for teaching me my own language as you would for French. So I won't give more than a shilling. Take it or leave it. You know, Pickering, if you consider a shilling not as a simple shilling... But as a percentage of this girl's income, it works out as fully equivalent to 60 or 70 guineas from a millionaire. How so? Figure it out. A millionaire has about 150 pounds a day. She earns about half a crown. Who told you I earn? She offers me two-fifths of her income for a lesson. Two-fifths of a millionaire's income for a day would be somewhere around 60 pounds, but it's handsome. By George, it's enormous. It's the biggest offer I've ever had. 60 pounds? What are you talking about? I never offered you 60 pounds. Where would I get? Hold your tongue. But I ain't got 60 pounds. Oh. Don't 
cry, you silly girl. Sit down. Nobody's going to touch your money. Somebody's going to touch it with a broomstick. If you don't stop sniveling, sit down. Oh, one would think you was my father. If I decide to teach you, I'll be worse than two fathers to you. Here, he hands her a handkerchief to wipe your eyes, to wipe any part of your face that feels moist. Remember, that, why do I sound so Australian? <laughs> I sound so Australian. I, was, I wasn't going to say anything because, you know, I can't do better. I'm moving on. I'm moving on. <laughs> I don't even know what, like, a gen- I, I've totally lost my ability to sound like an upper class gentleman. Maybe it just means I'm not upper class. Okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Throw another shrimp on the bob. Remember, that's your handkerchief and that's your sleeve. Don't mistake the one for the other if you wish to become a lady in a shop. It's no use talking to her like that, Mr. Higgins. She doesn't understand you. Besides, you're quite wrong. She doesn't do it that way at all. Yeah, you give me that handkerchief. He gave it to me, not to you. <laughs> he did. I think it must be regarded as her property, Mrs. Pierce. Serve you right, Mr. Higgins. Higgins, I'm interested. What about the ambassador's garden party? I'll say you're the greatest teacher alive if you make that good. I'll bet you all the expenses of the experiments you can't do it. And I'll pay for the lessons. Oh, you are real good. Thank you, Captain. It's almost irresistible. She's so deliciously low, so horribly dirty. Oh, I ain't dirty. I wash my face and hands before I come at it. You're certainly not going to turn her head with flattery, Higgins. Oh, a- don't say that, sir. There's more ways than one of turning a girl's head, and nobody can do it better than Mr. Higgins, though he may not always mean it. I do hope, sir, you won't encourage him to do anything foolish. What is life but a series of inspired follies? The difficulty is to find them to do. Never lose a chance. It doesn't come every day. I shall make a duchess out of this draggled-tailed gutter snipe. Oh. Yes, in six months. In three, if she's a good ear and a quick tongue, I'll take her anywhere and pass her off as anything. We'll start tomorrow. We'll start today. Now. This moment. Take her away and clean her, Mrs. Pierce. Monkey brand. And if I don't come off any other way, I don't understand what that means. Monkey brand, if I if it won't come if off it's. in any other way. Yeah. I got it, got it, got it. Is there a good fire in the kitchen? Yes, but... Take all of her clothes off and burn them. Ring up Whiteley or somebody or somebody for a few for new ones. Wrap her up in brown paper till they come. You're no gentleman. You're not. Talk of such things. I'm a good girl. I am. I know what the like of you are. I do. We want none of your listen grove prudery here, young woman. You've got to learn how to behave like a duchess. Take her away, Mrs. Pierce. If she gives you any trouble, wallop her. No, I'll call the police. I will. But I've no place to put her. Put her in the dustbin. Oh! Oh, come, Higgins, be reasonable. You must be reasonable, Mr. Higgins. Really, you must. You can't walk over everybody like this. I walk over everybody. My dear Mrs. Pierce, my dear Pickering, I never had the slightest intention of walking over anyone. All I propose is that we should be kind to this poor girl. We 
must help her to prepare and fit herself for her new station in life. If I did not express myself clearly, it was because I did not wish to hurt her delicacy or yours. Well, did you ever hear anything like that, sir? (laughs) Never, Mrs. Pearson, never. What's the matter? Well, the matter is, sir, that you can't take a girl up like that as if you were picking up a pebble on the beach. Why not? Why not? But you don't know anything about her. What about her parents? She may be married. Gone. There. As the girl very properly said, gone. Married, indeed. Do you know that a woman of that class looks a worn-out drudge of 50 a year after she's married? Oh, marry me. By George, Eliza, the streets will be strewn with the bodies of men shooting themselves for your sake before I've done with you. Nonsense, sir. You mustn't talk like that to her. I'm going away. He's off his chomper years. I don't want no bombers teaching me. Oh, indeed. I'm mad, am I? Very well, Mrs. Pierce. You needn't order new clothes for her. Throw her out. Oh, you've got no right to touch me. Ah, you see what comes of being saucy. This way, please. I didn't want no clothes. I wouldn't have taken them. I can buy my own clothes. You're an ungrateful, wicked girl. This is my return for offering to take you out of the gutter and dress you up beautifully and make a lady out of you. Stop, Mr. Higgins. I won't allow it. It's you that are wicked. Go home to your parents, girl, and tell them to take better care of you. Well, I got no parents. They told me I was big enough to earn my own living and turn me out. Where's your mother? Well, I got no mother. Mother turned me out was my sixth stepmother. But I don't know about them, and I'm a good girl, I am. Very well, then. What on earth is all this fuss for? What fuss about? The girl doesn't belong to anybody, is no use to anybody but me. You can adopt her. Mrs. Pierce, I'm sure a daughter would be of great amusement to you. But don't make any more fuss. Take her downstairs and then... But what's to become of her? Is she to be paid anything? Do be sensible, sir. Oh, pay her whatever is necessary. Put it down in the housekeeping book. What on earth will she want with money? She'll have her food and her clothes. She'll only drink if you give her money. Oh, you are a brute. It's a lie. Nobody ever saw the sign of liquor on me. Oh, sir, you're a gentleman. Don't let him speak to me like that. Does it occur to you, Higgins, that the girl has some feelings? Oh, no. I don't think so. Not any more, not any feelings that we need bother about. Have you, Eliza? I got my feelings, same as anyone else. You see the difficulty? Uh, what difficulty? To get her to talk grammar. The mere pronunciation is easily is easy enough. I don't want to talk grammar. I want to talk like a lady in a flower shop. Will you please keep to the point, Mr. Higgins? I want to know on what terms the girl is to be here. Is she to have any wages? And what is to become of her when you're finished with your teaching? You must look ahead a little. What's to become of her if I leave her in the gutter? Tell me that, Mrs. Pierce. Well, that's her own business, not yours, Mr. Higgins. Well, when I've done with her, we can throw her back into the gutter and then it will be her own business again. So that's all right. Oh, you no feeling hot in you. You don't care for nothing but yourself. Yeah, I've had enough of this. I'm going and you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You ought. Have some chocolates, Eliza. How do I know what might be in them? 
I've heard of girls being drugged by the like of you. Pledge of good faith, Eliza. I'll eat one half if you eat the other. Still your line. Uh, Oh, oh. Uh, You shall have boxes of them, Eliza. Barrels of them every day. You shall live on them, huh? I won't have edit, only I'm too ladylike to take it out of my mouth. Listen, Eliza, I think you said you came in a taxi. Well, what if I did? I'm as good a right to take a taxi as anyone else. You have, Eliza. And in future, you should have as many taxis as you want. You shall go up and down and round the town in a taxi every day. Think of that, Eliza. Mr. Higgins, you're tempting the girl. It's not right. She should think of the future. At her age? Nonsense. Time enough to think of the future when you haven't any future to think of. No. Eliza, do as this lady does. Think of other people's futures, but never think of your own. Think of chocolates and taxis and gold and diamonds. No, I don't want no gold and no diamonds. I'm a good girl, I am. You shall remain so, Eliza, under the care of Mrs. Pierce, and you shall marry an officer in the guards with a beautiful mustache, the son of a marquis who will disinherit him for marrying you, but will relent when he sees your beauty and goodness. Excuse me, Higgins, but I really must interfere. Mrs. Pierce is quite right. If this girl is to put herself in your hands for six months for an experiment in teaching, she must understand thoroughly what she's doing. How can she? She's incapable of understanding anything. Besides, do any of us understand what we are doing? If we did, would we ever do it? Oh, very clever, Higgins, but not to the present point. Miss Doolittle. Oh! There! That's all you get out of Eliza. Oh! No use explaining. As a military man, you ought to know that. Give her her orders. That's what she wants. Eliza, you are to live here for the next six months learning how to speak beautifully like a lady in a florist's shop. And if you're good and do whatever you're told, you shall sleep in a proper bedroom and have lots to eat and money to buy chocolates and take rides and taxis. If you're naughty and idle, you will sleep in the back kitchen among the black beetles and be walloped by Mrs. Pierce with a broomstick. At the end of six months, You shall go to Buckingham Palace in a carriage, beautifully dressed. If the king finds out you're not a lady, you will be taken by the police to the Tower of London, where your head will be cut off as a warning to other presumptuous flower girls. And if you are not found out, you shall have the present of seven and sixpence to start life with as a lady in a shop. If you refuse this offer... You will be a most ungrateful and wicked girl, and the angels will weep for you. Now, Pickering, are you satisfied? Mm. Mrs. Pierce, can I put it more plainly and fairly, Mrs. Pierce? I think you'd better let me speak to the girl properly in private. I don't know that I can take charge of her or consent to the arrangement at all. Of course, I know you don't mean her any harm, but when you get what you call interested in people's accents. You never think or care what may happen to them or you. Come with me, Eliza. That's all right. Thank you, Mrs. Pierce. Bundle her her off to the bathroom. 
you're a great bully, you are. I won't stay here if I don't like. I won't let nobody wallop me. I never asked to go to Buckingham Palace, I didn't. I was never in trouble with the police, not me. I'm a good girl. Don't answer back, girl. You don't understand the gentleman. Come with me. Well, what I say is right. I won't go near the king, not if I'm going to have my head cut off. If I know what I was letting myself in for, I wouldn't have come here. I always been a good girl. I never offered to say a word to him. I don't owe him nothing. And I don't care. And I won't be put upon. And I have my feelings as same as anyone else. Mrs. Pierce shuts the door and Eliza's plaints are no longer audible. That was so good. Jesse, you <laughs> nailed it. That was amazing. <laughs> I think Jesse's accent was so good was that I just so started good. I just started imitating. Well, Heidi, you did a great British as well. <laughs> oh, I you, got kind of cockney a couple times because oh, you okay. were you were so good. That was great. Thank you. That was super fun. So did you know that the next scene where Mrs. Pierce then takes her and like, explains that having a bath is not the worst thing in the world was not in the original play. Like he added that later. Oh, um, I didn't so the original that. ones that were in the public domain for originally that got first rewritten, he added that and something else, uh, that little scene um, like around the thirties or forties. I, I think I read so anyway, that's interesting. We only have a, maybe 10 more minutes here on this episode. Cause an hour and a half is probably our max uh, for the amount of time that we can spend actually recording. But of course, we do have the Q&A time next week. So, Jesse, since you're here, I'd, I'd love to hear from you on what do you find compelling about this character that you just played? And, you know, rereading that scene again, and you brought a lot of energy to it and a lot of verb and there's verve. And there's these lines about, you know, she says over and over again, I've been a good girl and all that. So I'm like, what stands out to you as being like most compelling when you're performing this character? Like, what can you get your head around the most? Well, other than this being, I mean, there's so many lines in here that are really funny and it's really easy to get wrapped up in just, I mean, the, it just so fast, it just goes and goes, but remembering where she comes from, even just being so like cockney, she knows she's from the, from the streets. And so she's always thinking of her own survival in, in a sense, because she has no parents. She has no one to watch for her. I mean, even in the very beginning in act one, She's worried about the police. She's worried about people watching her and picking her up the streets, you know? So she's always saying, I'm a good girl. I'm a good girl. She's not a prostitute. You know, she's not going to let someone take advantage of her. And you can see that kind of almost terror in her because she knows where she is in life. And she knows she can't quite defend herself properly if someone were to accuse her. So I think the, the way she comes about this, you see the courage and just kind of, I'm coming here to this man. He said he could help me. But I'm also going to let them know that I'm a good girl. I'm not going to let them take advantage of me. And I think she kind of gets wrapped up in it. It's kind of chaotic, the scene. And I think it's hard for her to just think clearly while everyone's talking over her and with her. Uh, yeah. But I think, I mean, she's just fun, fun to play all throughout. But you see the same line through the entire play of her resilience. She does change quite a bit, but more so in just finding her will like her self will mm. and the words and the ability to say what she feels inside, which she doesn't really in the beginning. That's what I like about her. One of my favorite bits that you just did there. In addition to just the accent was the way you did all those like guttural sounds that are just in the book. <laughs> I it. think you nice, said they sound Steven. like a, they sound like a, make it sound like a pigeon. And it's, yeah, it's, it's what it, he it, said. Billius pigeon. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Megan said, but it has that sense of like, she's just not, 
it's like, as I said, guttural. It's like emotive. Yeah. It's just kind of coming in from inside of her. Right. You, like she you, can't clearly enunciate what she's, what she's feeling yeah. yet, which you, yeah. which she does at the end of the play. Tim, um, let's talk about this, like this scene a little bit in this play in general, before yeah. we wrap up for today as a director, put on your directorial hat. Um, what is most interesting to you? Like he does give a lot of stage directions, but are, is there anything about the scene or any of the, let's maybe we focus on this scene, but let us play in general. What well, would be interesting as a director. One thing that I would be curious to try, who knows how it would work, you know, if we had a real stage, but it seems like there are kind of um, two characters who are sort of vying for Eliza's actions. One of them, of course, is Higgins. Higgins wants her to kind of join in this experiment. And then the other side, let's say, is Mrs. Pierce. I think Pickering is over there also. But they're sort of like, this is absurd. You can't do this. This is a real person's life. And so I would be curious to kind of see Eliza in the middle kind of being torn back and forth between these two pole positions. And and I think, I wonder what you think, Jesse, I kind of think that Eliza could leave at any point. I think she's intrigued by the prospect. I think she actually wants to try this as much as she knows it's insulting and degrading. I think she thinks these are gentlemen. Maybe I'll have a chance at a different sort of life. Do you think that she's internally Oh yeah, compelled I mean, by the offer. Absolutely, and I think, as we like mentioned before, in her words, she's trying her best to express what she's saying. But I think she's in this moment trying to set boundaries the best way she can. But thankfully, she has Mrs. Pierce to kind of be her moral support in a yeah. in a way, um, and even Pickering, I suppose. But yeah, I could see her, and she you she threatens to leave. She says, I'm leaving, you know, and then, but yeah. she does kind of stick around because she does well, want to chocolate. Yeah, well, yeah. chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> if she knew she was getting a bath the way she did, maybe, you know, in the extra yeah. scene, maybe she wouldn't have stuck around. <laughs> yeah. I can totally imagine some of those lines where Eliza is saying, you know, I'm leaving her taking two steps toward Higgins instead of away from Higgins. Mm -hmm. When she says that, you know, like maybe mm -hmm. later in the scene. I love what you're saying about the blocking though, Tim, because I think all four of these characters, you can say so much about who they are, what their relationships are, just based on where you put them. Like when I was thinking of Pickering, yeah. for example, just because I was thinking about the seven lines that he says or whatever, I can imagine him sitting in like a leather chair by the fire, middle of the stage, maybe kind of like also being drawn between the two. Yeah. Like trying to decide, do I yeah. go with my boy or do I, am I recognizing, I'm recognizing this is maybe a little bit, is he really being just in the way he's treating her? Maybe he's mm. sitting there smoking a pipe and every now and then he just drops one of his lines. Uh, like Mrs. Pierce, Heidi, as you were saying those lines and uh, um, doing a quite actually uh, pretty good British accent, given quite the, commendable. your lack of, um, you know, uh, theater uh, history um, experience. What do you find compelling about Mrs. Pierce as a character? Because this is not the only time that she's a meaningful character in, in the play. Right. Yeah. I mean, she, she fills in the gap. They have to give Eliza some kind of human experience in the Higgins home. And I think Pickering is the kind of male side of a truly civilized person. Mm. 
And, and then, but Mrs. Pierce cares for her, advocates for her more humane treatment, um, and stands up to Higgins. In fact, all of the women in this play stand up to Higgins, um, with the exception of Claire, the minor characters, but his mother, his housekeeper, uh, and Eliza, um, this one of the accusations leveled against this play is that it's sexist, but it really, that that's the opposite of Shaw's intention for this play. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. is trying to present women as uh, equal, if not superior uh, to men. And so that that's a misunderstanding of his intention um, of this play for sure. But Mrs. Pierce advocates for Eliza and cares for her physically uh, and pays attention to her as a person. And the contrast of um, of Mrs. Pierce and Pickering to Higgins, I, I think, gives us our some of the moral center of the play. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. Well, we... Go ahead, Tim. I was going to say, I would have... In this scene, I would have Pickering sitting the whole time and everybody else on their feet because mm. I, I think at this point in the play and maybe in the whole play, he's he's more passive yeah. than is Higgins. And so if Higgins is on his feet, energetically impassioned, trying to get Eliza to kind of join in his cause or at least relent to his cause, well, we don't see active standing opposition from Pickering. And I think that's part of the reason why Eliza ends up kind of joining Higgins because I don't think that Pickens is. I think he's Pickering. thinking of this Pickering. What is what is the problem? <laughs> it's just you're just what is the Higgins problem? And you're just putting them together. That's fine. That's very generous of you, Higgins. As I Pickens. was saying about Higgering, Higgering, <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> anyway, all that along sort of just to say I would have Pickering sitting. Mm. Um, we have our Q and a next week and we'll take, we'll try to block off. Hopefully we can block off a good amount of time. I haven't asked them if we can, you know, Tim and Heidi, if we can do that again to cover enough questions, but it would be, it might be fun to, I don't know. We haven't talked about this either. It might be fun to try to have Jesse back on and do another scene in the fifth act or like a portion of a scene. Um, one more time, but before we wrap up this play, because I think one of the great things about doing a play is just, the performative aspect of it. Like it was written to be spoken out loud. Shakespeare was written to be seen on stage and it offers so much being read just as this play does, but it's not the same as hearing it, the words spoken out loud, especially a play that is about the nature of saying words out loud. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That's a great point. Doing another, another scene maybe would be a good way to either kick off or conclude our Q and a. So we'll talk about that. I just throwing that out here without talking to anybody, uh, any of my, my co-conspirators here. Um, but yeah, uh, Jesse, thank you so much for for coming on. It was really fun to, uh, to have you on. And, um, okay, don't forget about all the stuff going on. Tim, what's going on in uh, the Plays the Thing world? Two things. I recorded a two-part podcast with our friend Christopher Perrin about teaching Shakespeare, about what we think was probably Shakespeare's education, That will be released after Heidi and I, along with Ian and Emily Roberts, Andrews, Andrews. I have a problem today. I don't know what it is. You need to take your omega dyslexia. I need to take my omega threes. It's named dyslexia of some sort. Um, It's three omegas. 
It's Three Omegas. We are in the middle of A Midsummer Night's Dream, apparently Shakespeare's third most popular play. Third most popular play. That's right. And so that's you know what what's is interesting? happening on the plays, the thing. Speaking of Midsummer, when reading Higgins, I, I'm not exactly sure why, but I kept getting a whiff of Bottom and Malvolio. Really? And I might, we might have to, I'm going to have to explain why on the, on the Q and a, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just going to throw that out there just to offer some chaos into the world of this podcast. Heidi, um, we're, uh, we we're working through out of the side of the planet right now. Mm-hmm. You and Sean, uh, Johnson carried the weight on that last episode. Cause I had to miss it, but, uh, we're going to be finishing up out of the silent planet and then moving on to Paralandra. So what's one thing about, those that about other Senate planet so far that you are really uh, enjoying or surprised by this this during this reading. Um, I think in this reading, I'm one thing I said on the podcast last time is how much it fits in with um with the Republic with Plato's Republic, and so I've been drawing a lot of parallels between the worlds, um, and that's been really fun to talk to Sean about. Um, so yeah, we're having a great time. Of course, Sean's enthusiastic about that book and he, he does a good job. So, um, we have also on Friday, we have a little thing that dropped for our subscribers, uh, where you get to help choose the final eight entries into our 2023 March madness bracket. So go over to closereads.substack.com for such bonus content as that in the out of the silent planet conversations. But that brings us to the end of this week's episode. So for Tim McIntosh, for Heidi White, and for Jesse Turpin, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. 